Welcome to Health Now, WebMD's podcast about health, wellness, and you. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get started. Are you trying to figure out how to start getting out more if it's allowed in your area while still trying to avoid catching the coronavirus? It turns out there's quite a bit you can do, and it's simpler than you might think. A lot of it comes down to managing two things, the dose of the virus and the time you were exposed to it, according to our guest today. He's Aaron Bromage, PhD, and he's an associate professor of biology at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. He focuses on the immune system and infectious diseases. Dr. Bromage isn't an expert on this coronavirus, but he's closely tracking the science and writes about it in plain language for the general public. Maybe you read his recent blog post called The Risks, Know Them, Avoid Them. Dr. Bromage, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me on the show, Carrie. There's so much to cover, but I wanted to start with the two key factors that you've identified about uh, this coronavirus, exposure to it and time. Can you describe those factors for us a little bit and why they matter? Yeah. So I had uh, a lot of friends that had the misunderstanding that you just needed to be exposed to the virus and that would lead to infection and you getting sick. And when I started explaining to them, it's not just an exposure, it's exposure over time um, where the risk starts to increase. Um, and those two elements come together because you can get a low exposure to the virus over a longer period of time and become infected, or you can get exposed to a high amount of virus over a short period of time and then get infected. Um, most of us don't come in contact with high dose virus unless someone coughs or sneezes on us. But as we're moving back into the workplace and back into the economy, there are plenty of opportunities where we can be exposed to low dose virus over an extended period of time. And what I've been trying to do is just educate people on those situations where you could get exposed to the virus and time and lead to infection and just to make better decisions in life so that you don't risk, put yourself at risk. Right. We're all going to have to start making even more of those decisions as we sort of try to uh, get back to our regular lives as much as we can. We noted, obviously, that you're not, a, not uh, you say yourself, you're not an expert in this particular coronavirus. And there's so much information that's still being learned um, at, even today about the virus. So can you give us an idea of the types of information that you went to, um, to, to learn all of this? And where do you encourage people to get their coronavirus information? Yeah, so I, I turned to literally to the experts and to the, the brand new literature that is coming out literally every day. Mm -hmm. There is one of the most amazing things that I have seen happen um, because of this outbreak is the, the sharing of information on social media by the, the real rock stars in this field, in public health, in epidemiology, in genetics. And they have uh, essentially a group on Twitter, which appears to be the best medium for this, where they will be discussing new ideas, where their thoughts are going, um, what appears to be happening or not. And I've been able to, to watch from 10,000 feet as these absolutely incredible scientists are essentially discussing in real time what they're finding and what they're discovering. Um, there has also been an, a new surge in putting papers out before they've actually been peer-reviewed so that you don't have to wait a month or three months to actually see the paper. Um, and why that is good is because the more information we get about this virus quicker, the better decisions we can make. But it also has a downside is that peer review and having other scientists look at the work and say, this is okay before it gets out into the general public is really important process to make sure that there's not misinformation. So it has a, a plus and a negative side. But again, one of the amazing things that has happened is 
a new paper will come out. It's not peer reviewed. And then you get to see, you know, again, these amazing scientists. Um, one of the ones that you know, comes to mind is Professor Natalie Dean. Uh, when the Santa Clara study came out, it had only been out for a few hours and she had spent time method um, going through the paper and making sure that it was, you know, rigorous, robust, and really said, really found what they said they found. And it was clear with that type of review that it was not a strong paper. And we then knew that it wasn't something that we could rely on for making decisions. So it's really been a, an amazing situation to watch um, all these scientists coalesce around a single problem and share their information in real time to make us go faster, forward faster. Right. That makes sense. Can you give us an idea of how contagious this virus is? You wrote in your, in your blog post, which has millions of views at this point, um, that it could happen with a single eye rub or from one breath. Is that different than other types of viruses or uh, is it pretty much on par? Well, each virus has its own, or each infectious disease has its own um, unique amount of uh, either viral particles or bacterial particles it needs to establish an infection. Some can be as low as you know, 10, uh, 20, 30 particles. Some can be as high as millions. Um, this one here with the SARS-CoV-2, we don't know exactly how many, um, but Professor Rasmussen, uh, who's a central rock star in this field, you know, is estimating somewhere around about 900 to 1500 infectious viral particles may start infection. And when you think that um, in the back of your throat, um, you know, in the, the nasal regions, down in your lungs, you can literally have billions upon billions of infectious viral particles there. One sneeze, one cough, that releases the, the mucus and the droplets where those viruses are ready to be dispersed can really lead to a, an infectious dose very quickly in somebody that is close to that person. So that's, I mean, to me, that sounds incredibly contagious. You know, one single cough or sneeze that could, that could be enough to, to give you, you know, the, the amount of virus that you would become infected by. Yeah, so that's one of the, the interesting things about this particular virus. And we, I hear it regularly that it's just the flu. Um, we know how contagious the flu is. Uh, for every person that gets infected, they infect about 1.3 people. Um, that 1.3 people infects another 1.3. So after about 10 jumps, you're looking at about 14-ish people infected. Um, and that's how the flu season starts building. But with this virus, with SARS-CoV-2, they expect that that number is not 1.3, rather it's three. And it doesn't seem like a big jump, but one infects three, three ends up being nine, nine is 27. And so by the time you get through you know, 10 jumps, you've got 59,000 people infected. That's where the real big difference lays in this is just how many people it can actually infect. Right. Um, so let's talk about that for a minute. Um, obviously, for a few months now, people have been or should have been at least um, staying at home, avoiding contact with other people to prevent uh, coming in contact with someone who has the virus. Now people are starting to um, venture out into the world for better or worse. Um, so what are the riskiest types of places in your estimation to catch this coronavirus? Yeah, so we cannot deny contact surfaces, so high contact surfaces, elevator buttons, hand railings, um, bathroom doors, faucets, any of those type of places out in public can lead to you getting it on your hands and then rubbing your face eyes and you can end up with infection that way. What I am most concerned about as we start uh, getting back out and you know behaving like we did in December of last year is those indoor environments um, that can that end up with lots of people uh, with poor airflow 
when we get those type of situations together, we're ready just to have that sets you up for a cluster for a very large outbreak in that area. Uh, we've seen it numerous times right throughout the world that these enclosed spaces with lots of people um, brought in close contact leads to not just one, two or three people infected, like I said, but 80 or 100 people infected in one event. And you mentioned, I think in your, your post, you mentioned something like a funeral or a birthday party, um, you know, those types of environments where people are, I assume, in an enclosed space where that has the really high potential for, for infection. Yeah, you know, there was a, a CDC report that came out, it was from Chicago, um, where a person didn't know that they were infected or they had mild symptoms but really hadn't put it together that they were infected. And they shared a meal with a couple of um, family members. And, you know, it's unclear if it was from the talking or whether it was from shared um, serving cutlery that they were having a meal together. Uh, whether how transmission occurred, but it did result in the infection of two people in that household. But then that same person went to a funeral and gave a few hugs to people and a number of people got infected there. Um, the person then went to a birthday party and more people got infected there. So from one person with just normal interactions that we have, uh, resulted in, I believe, 16 other people being infected. Wow. One of the interesting things that I read in your, in your post was the types of places that people may be worried about going to, but maybe aren't all that risky. You know, I think a lot of people might be cautious about going to the grocery store or other places like that, uh, the pharmacy where there's a lot of other people they might interact with. Tell us about the types of places that maybe you may not have to worry so much about going. Yeah, so where this post originally started, not where it ended, was I was trying to um, rank risks. Um, what was the most risky? What was the least risky? Because I felt that people were um, getting mad at people sitting on a blanket in the middle of Central Park. And they had no idea if those people were in the same household um, or whether it was really two households coming together. And people were getting really, really mad at joggers and bike riders. And I sat back and went, that's not where you need to be spending your mental energy and becoming anxious. They're not really part of the bigger problem of how this virus um, transmits through the community. And lots of people are concerned about grocery stores. But for me, I look at, I can only talk locally, but I assume that this is happening nationally. Um, the local grocery stores very quickly reduced the number of people that were allowed inside their store. Um, so that took away one of my risk factors, which was lots of people in an enclosed space. The stores themselves are enormous. And so now we're dealing with a large volume we needed to cut down on interactions. So rather than having people going two ways up and down an aisle, they made aisles one way so that you didn't have a lot of, you know, cross face sort of interactions with people there. They put all of these things in place to uh, limit those risks of infection. So interactions in closed spaces, lots of people. And by doing that, they reduced the risk in those particular environments. Added on to that, their staff started wearing face masks. They required everybody else to wear face masks. And so that dropped down those respiratory emissions into that grocery store environment. And so now the risk comes down even lower. Um, those type of moves means that grocery shopping is not up there with the ones that you should be worrying about. Same with being outdoors. If you can maintain appropriate physical distance between yourself and other people, you should be able to be out there without a face mask. You should be able to enjoy the environment, enjoy the beach, the park, um, but make sure that you do have a face mask there when you come to a, a path where you can't maintain six feet difference, uh, distance um, or where interactions have to happen. Just make sure you've got a mask to do your part 
um, and not increase the risk. That makes sense. To that point, I wanted to run through some different kinds of activities that people are wondering about at this point. And maybe we can talk a little bit about what might be safer and what might be a little riskier. And a couple that come to mind are two that I know you've talked about previously, which is speaking quietly versus speaking loudly. Um, and also an activity like singing, which would be kind of sim sounds similar to loud speaking. Yeah, so um, respiratory droplets can, t can contain the virus if you're infected. Um, the louder the noise that comes out of your mouth or the faster the air comes out of your mouth, the more respiratory droplets you can put out and the further they travel. Um, so at the simplest level, just when you're doing normal tidal, tidal breathing um, in and out through your nose, you're actually releasing very low levels or almost none of the virus. This is not with this virus we don't know yet, but say with influenza, we do know. Um, mouth open breathing, a little bit more comes out. When you start just talking at a, a soft level, it increases by about uh, tenfold over normal breathing, the amount of respiratory droplets that come out. But as soon as you get into yelling and singing, it's more forceful. Um, you're usually pushing up from your diaphragm to get the, uh, get the noise out. Um, that can release droplets, viral particles from deep down in the lungs, and they project a lot further out. And that's why we're seeing these um, super spreading events in uh, choir groups or in churches is because of the, the singing and projecting it out, but also we need to take in a deep breath to be able to sing loudly, which then allows those respiratory droplets to get deep down in our lungs and cause infection. It's sort of the, the perfect storm in those situations. Right. I'm part of a choir myself. And I, when I read that, I, you know, I, I'd been thinking like, gee, I, th I bet it's going to be a long time before I'm, we're able to come together in a setting like this, because it does seem like the perfect scenario to spread a virus you, that spread through respiratory drop. Droplet. Yeah. But I would like people not to think that it's not going to happen. We just need to think about it differently. Mm -hmm. um, outdoor stages where you can line people up in a line and the breeze in their face, sing your heart out. The risk is dropped down. There are ways that we can do it to still enjoy what we love, but not put others at risk. Another activity I think people, I see people taking part in this, but maybe people are wondering about it, is going for a walk outside with a friend. Yeah, um, we, we do that regularly here. Um, we will meet up with friends in the neighborhood and we go for a walk outside with, our friend, with a friend. Um, we just maintain appropriate physical distance away, about six feet. Um, and we try not to stop and talk to each other face to face. Face-to-face um, -face talking projects those respiratory droplets straight at them. Um, and so over a 10 or 15 minute conversation, even outdoors, it's more risky indoors when there's no breeze, but even outdoors, that 10 to 15 minute conversation could lead to enough virus building up in a person to become infected. So if we're having a conversation, we're just walking six feet apart, side by side, facing forward like you normally would, and having the conversation that way. Um, it poses very, very little risk when you're doing it like that. Right. What about something that's a little more vigorous, like harder exercise, maybe playing sports, you know, basketball, something like that? Yeah, so I have no concerns about tennis. Um, you know, there's the potential, for example, with tennis that it could be transmitted on the ball. But again, there's ways you can do it. Just, you know, try not to put your hands into your face and transmit anything from the ball. So things where you've got distance, I'm not too concerned about basketball, soccer, uh, any of those um, sports that do bring people close and have contact, we need to understand more about this virus and the transmission to really get back into those type of things yet. Um, I, I mean, I can see that a lot of professional sports are wanting to get up and going. They're understanding the risk of bringing these professional athletes into a closed space. And I mean, just facing off on the, um, 
you know, soccer field or football field, um, that can be enough to, to end in transmission. And so they're putting in place incredible um, protocols to test all the players and isolate them because they know if it gets into a team, it's not going to be one or two, it's going to be 10 or 20 and things are, pro- you know, are going to be a problem. When we start reopening with sports, it can only happen when the burden of disease in your local area is, is low. You'd be crazy to start up any type of sports, say in New Jersey or New York at the moment. Um, same with you know, Boston, we need to wait till we get it lower. Um, but there are parts of, there are places in the country where they've seen only a handful of cases and they've got a decent population and it hasn't happened. So you know, they can be, it's not more risky because the amount of virus is lower. Um, so it's going to be unique for every, every place that you're at. I know in a lot of states, gyms were among the first places to reopen to be on the list uh, that, you know, it's safe to go back or it's, you know, safe for those businesses to open. Um, is there a safe way to go to the gym right now? As you've mentioned, indoor, sp- indoor places where people are, you know, exerting themselves. Uh, I wonder about that, the potential for transmission in a place like that. Yeah. Um, so that, that one there, that, that is a tough one. Again, each gym is unique, but most gyms that, you know, I've been to are these huge cavernous spaces um, with lots of air volume and lots of air turnover, because if they didn't, it would be a pretty stinky place. Mm. Um, so straight away, they're uh, better than what a smaller environment would be. But then you have to counter that with the heavy breathing um, you know, lots of breathing hard, really pushing out could really dispel uh, virus into that environment quite quickly and efficiently. And a study that just came out this week really does describe that situation where um, there was a, a cardio class essentially being run where there, I believe it was about 30 instructors were there. Um, eight of those instructors became infected they went out and taught classes at their respective gyms and you ended up with 70, 80, 90 people becoming infected from that. So we know that transmission can happen in that environment. One of the interesting things though that came out in that study was the yoga and the Pilates where it's not deep breathing and people are naturally separated Um, there was no transmission in those particular situations. It may have been because the instructor wasn't infected, um, and there's caveats to that, but the big one is anything that's cardio that really would result in deep, heavy breathing um, is going to have to be looked at carefully. I I can't see how spin classes, I can't see how uh, any of those type of closed room um, training happens. Take it outside, do something different, engineer your way out of it, potentially. In a normal weight room environment, I have a better hope that we can get back to that. Um, lower down, like uh, reduce the number of people that are in there, that's a, a great start. Uh, increase the amount of cleaning that happens in the environment, great start. Um, if we find that um, the air exchange is not as good as it could be. I, I've heard gym owners talking about staying open for a few hours, shutting down for half an hour so staff can clean very, very carefully the environment, then reopen back up. Um, basically not allowing someone that trains right now to infect somebody that comes an hour or so later because of a surface or because of, because of the air. Interesting. Uh, lots of ways that gyms would have to think about how they do their business. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'm very confident they can do it. Um, I've seen some good descriptions by gym owners on how they're going to do it. I mean, locker rooms will need to disappear for a while. Um, Any sort of drinking fountains will need to disappear for a while. Uh, We need to limit interactions and areas. Um, But we all want to get back into the gym. We all want to have this happen. There is a way to do it and do it safely. Um, And that's what I'm hoping people embrace um, because again, it's our decisions, our actions, our choices right now 
that determine the trajectory of what comes next. What do you think about an activity like going to get your hair cut? Um, I have very few concerns about haircuts and I'll tell you why. Um, our hairdresser just reached out with, she's allowed to um, restart business in Massachusetts now, uh, but she has a childcare issue that it's hard to find someone to look after her children. And she said, would you be open for an outdoor haircut at my place? And I was like, yes. Um, so all four of us are going to head open there as soon as she gets this ready to have a haircut. Um, I'll wear a mask. She'll wear a mask, even though that we're outside. Um, just because of the, the proximity and time becomes, becomes an issue. Now, I realize everybody can't do that, and it's unique. But when you think of most hairdressers and hair salons you go to, um, there is easy ways to spread customers out inside the store. Use every second chair. Um, make sure that you don't have somebody, like have people waiting in the wait room, uh, waiting area. Just limit the number of bodies that are in there um, and limit the amount of time that a people, people are in there. I don't know if I would go in for a hair coloring or a treatment that took two hours right now, um, but certainly a normal uh, guy or girl, long hair, short hair, uh, haircut uh, should not be a risk if they're cleaning the environment, reduce the people and both wear masks. Okay, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about the fact that some, you know, things you would do with your hair would take longer than, than other things. So that would be an important thing to think about as well. Yeah, I mean, if you and the hairdresser are the only person in there and you're going for a longer treatment, then the risk is really quite low. Um, but if it's you're in there and you're getting a treatment done and eight people come in during that time for 15-minute haircuts, you've just increased your risk. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but um, in terms of you know professional sports teams and the players' risk of contracting the virus, but what about fans or you know music lovers who you know going to a big game or a concert some sort of major event like that is that pretty risky at this point in your estimation so heading to patriot stadium or something like that is is risky right now um and not because all 60,000 fans are going to become infected um there's just too much space you know between people for that to happen the risk lies in everybody loves to get into the game and yell and scream and just feel like you're part of it. Um, and so if I was infected and really enjoying the game and I'm, you know, supporting my team um, in that voice zone around me um, where my respiratory droplets could land and fall, that could be a spot for a cluster could you know, be a spot for an outbreak. So it's not like I'm going to hurt the entire stadium, but put 10 of me into that stadium and all of a sudden you've got lots of people infected. So we're really going to have to think about how we get fans in a stadium safely because it's impossible to say you need to sit here and be quiet. We, we just can't, we can't do that. Right. Um, <laughs> and good luck enforcing that as well. <laughs> yeah, good luck enforcing that. You know, a big concern I have because I do love live music um, is how we get back to listening to live music and create the atmosphere that you would have at a concert indoors. Um, you know, the indoor environment would just facilitate a, a more rapid spread amongst the people. And I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of ways outside of the box other than just reducing the number of people that are in there substantially and finding ways to improve airflow substantially, but it still would be a risk. Right. Um, outdoor concerts, you know, like we see, um, you know, in the park where you've got a plenty of room to spread out and maybe people aren't engaging and yelling so much with the people that they're next to, to speak, um, lowers the risk substantially. Uh, one of the, the things that I'm looking forward to this summer is we have a, a, a local brewery. They have a beautiful outdoor space, essentially on a converted farm. Um, with speaking to them, it's just keep 
we want music there because it creates ambience, but keep the music low so that a conversation between a table can stay at a reasonable, reasonable level. Um, and that's we're not really getting people having people having to yell and scream to converse. There are ways to engineer this socially um, and physically with table setouts and things like that to do it, especially outside. But it's going to take a lot of thought when you're you're inside. Right. We've gotten a lot of questions about when certain things are okay to do. Um, like, how would you know when it might be okay to fold in things to your routine, like going out to a restaurant or going to the gym, uh, traveling, things like that. Is there a, 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 a number that people are looking for? Or I, I assume we're, it'll, I don't know if we're going to get something like an all clear signal. It seems unlikely that that would happen. Do you have any concept of, of when people might be able to look forward to, you know, the events that they were used to before? Yeah. Well, one of the, I would really suggest that listeners spend time and find their local, their state level um, data. Every state has a website with this. You could just type in Rhode Island and COVID-19 and you will go to essentially a, a web page that will give you all the information. Um, and it will have some places have it on a town level, but if not on a county level, uh, what the trends are in your area, rising, steady, decreasing. Um, and if you find yourself in a county that has rising numbers, then you need to incorporate more risk-adverse behaviours into your day-to-day. But if you're in a state that has, you know, 10 new cases in a day, then you can feel more comfortable that you don't have to have armor on every time you go out to enjoy these events. So it's going to be at a, a county, even a town level about what you need to do. Um, locally, you know, we have 10, I think 10 to 15,000 people here and we've had uh, maybe a little 150 or so cases. I think we might be up to 200 cases so far spread out over the last few months. Uh, we're only getting a few new cases each day. So for me, the disease burden is very low in this area. And I can't wait for when the restaurants open, especially the outdoor um, seating areas of those restaurants to, to go and have a steak and to have a beer and just to, to catch up with um, you know, friends, watch the sunset over the river, anything like that. That sounds so great. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> I can't wait for those days. There is so much variation right now in, in testing in different areas. Um, so how, how reliable or how can people know if the uh, local data that's being collected in their state or their county is reliable uh, at this point, considering the, you know, the, the fact that testing isn't quite as robust um, as it might be? Yeah, so the testing, tracing, and isolating program is absolutely critical for us to get back to the new normal. Um, states that are not investing in the testing, tracing, and isolating are really doing a disservice to their constituents, uh, to really the, the whole country overall, because people move. Um, one of the, the big things that you should be looking for with the, the testing side of things is how many tests do they do to find a positive case? And if you find that your state is, um, you know, 10% of all cases are positive that they do a test or higher, your state's not doing enough. Um, what you're aiming for is, you know, your state is doing enough when you're looking at somewhere around two to 5% of every test that they run becomes up positive. So two tests out of 100 are positive. That shows you that your state is testing enough to capture um, people that are infected in your population. And you mentioned keeping an eye on the cases locally uh, in your own particular area, which brings to mind travel going to different areas of the country. Um, is there um, right now, what is your assessment of the risk of 
you know, traveling to another place, I guess it would probably depend a lot on how you got there. Yeah. You know, if you control everything, if you drive, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you've got to get gas, you're going to touch the, the, the Bowser that you use to fill it up, but you can wipe your hands afterwards. Um, you can pay by credit card right at the, the pump. You can limit interactions. Um, so you've got that under control when that's, well, I shouldn't say when that's allowed, it's allowed. Um, you control that completely. Flying is a little bit different um, because it's very difficult to socially distance in airports. Um, there's just too many points where we're focused together, like security and boarding and those type of things. Not so to they, mention the, the seats on the airplanes themselves. <laughs> right. The seats on the airplanes themselves, it's very different, difficult to socially distance. But one of the things that people may not be aware of is the, the quality of the filtration that is in airplanes, especially when you're flying. Um, I only learned this recently, um, just through some research I was doing for my own flying. Um, they're turning over the air inside a plane, complete air exchange, um, every three to five minutes. Mm. Um, they have incredible filtration, HEPA filtration inside the airplanes that turn over the air 20 to 30 times per hour. Um, so the environment, the air environment inside a plane is as good as almost any indoor environment that you can get. But that doesn't take away the risk from contact surfaces. Um, so tray tables, um, you know, you watch people walking down aisleways, putting their hands on top of the chairs. Um, all these you know, bathrooms, all those surfaces are points for potential transmission. Um, and then I look at the people in your spray zone, um, a row in front, a row behind and beside you. That's where your real risk lays is those interactions there. Um, wearing masks will have a, a big effect on stopping um, transmission from somebody close to you. And I am happy that airlines are saying that this is a requirement. I just wish people would understand that it's not about them. It's about everybody else on the plane as well. So even if they don't have a concern for it, their lack of care could result in somebody else getting hurt. Um, And I I put my money where my mouth is. We were, I don't know if it was silly enough, but we actually flew a long haul flight from Australia to Boston um, about five weeks ago. And we just put in place procedures that would protect us as well as possible while we were doing that. Um, you know, little things, wiping down surfaces, minimizing contacts when you're inside, um, hand sanitizer, often uh, window seats are better than aisle seats because you don't have people walking past you. Uh, you know, it might've been just dumb luck that we did not get exposed or infected. Um, but I do actually detail on, I actually did a little blog about flying and the things that we did to um, minimize risk for us. And were you able to distance yourself from other passengers pretty well? Was that something you had control over? We were fortunate um, heading over there. We were not, it was fairly full Um, heading back. We were fortunate that our flights, even though they were the last few flights coming out of Australia uh, were quite empty and when we landed in uh, LA and flew LA to Boston, uh, we almost had the plane to ourselves. Wow. Um, the scariest part of that whole situation was, was landing in Los Angeles and the um, security coming off the plane and the baggage pickup. It felt like we were being corralled like cattle with very little concern for disease transmission. And I really hope they've got that sorted out. But when we were put in that situation, I just said to my wife and children, let's just stand across to the side. It's going to take us an extra hour to get through this, but we don't need to be in that situation right now. Right. Just take the time to, to control what you can. It's interesting. That's exactly right. When would you think it would be, if ever safe to visit loved ones who are elderly or who have a condition that compromises their immune system? Yeah, so we can do this and we can do this very soon if we get enough testing. Um, 
you know, I, I heard some really, um, you know, brilliant ideas being bounced around by, you know, some of the experts that I really trust, who, you know, with their advice. We know that there's a, an incubation period um, of anywhere between one and about five days with this virus. And so it was just musings, but I, I think about this as a potential way that we can move forward. Um, if you are able to strictly isolate yourself from interactions, um, take yourself out of society and communication with, you know, contact with anyone for four days, be able to conduct an in-home test or get a test done that will look for the virus, know that you are negative, you should then be able to, with um, a high degree of certainty, know that you're not going to go and infect a loved one. Um, we don't have the testing yet to be able to not waste, but use on visits and social visits. Um, but, you know, I have family members I would love to see. Um, I know everybody does have family members they would love to see, but we just can't risk that because of how devastating it can be to them. So I'm hoping that as testing capacity builds up and as our knowledge of the virus and how it spreads builds up, that we can come up with, oh, let's isolate for four or five days. Let's have a test. We now know that we're not infected with a high degree of certainty, not 100%, but a high degree, and then we can go and have that visit. Um, it doesn't sound pleasant getting ready for that, but to be able to see these people that are so isolated from their friends and family at the moment, um, for the next few months or whatever this takes, that might be a, a way forward that we can actually do it and do it safely and not introduce this into their home or a nursing home or a, you know, an aged care facility. Are there suggestions that you've heard about for employers about how to open up, um, whether it's an office or another type of workplace, safely? Um, you know, I just, in a cursory, you know, glance at uh, the conversations out there, you know, there's talk about redoing floor plans and saying, you know, so some people come one day and other people come another day, cleaning procedures. Um, what do you think are the things that, that businesses should be thinking about right now? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the interesting things that has come out of this situation is there's been a realization that maybe we don't need to have uh, that big expensive office in the center of downtown to run our business. Um, people seem to, some people seem to be working very, very efficiently from home. Um, and maybe that large expanse is not needed. So I can see there might be an actual change in the way that, you know, businesses are thinking as leases end about ways to moving forward. But in the situations where you can't do that, we do need to start really thinking about um, altering our environments, making sure that the custodial staff have everything they need to keep the place clean and to keep themselves protected. Um, to make sure that we don't have um, areas where people have to funnel and go all at one time, like a um, communal lunchroom and things like that. We've got to think about how we, we work those to, to lower risk there. Um, there's been uh, interesting, I think it's Austria is trying this 410 program. Um, so it's a, a four day week. You have half your workforce come in for four days. Um, they then go home and isolate for 10 days. The following week, the other half of employees come in and they work for four days and then they go home and isolate for 10 days. And it's a, an interesting proposal based on the biology of incubation periods and, you know, becoming symptomatic that allows workplaces to get back and not worry about your entire workforce going down. Um, that, you know, we just, we do need to think outside of the box. Um, thinking of some of the local fish processing and packing facilities, rather than running a single eight hour shift in the day, they're running three eight hour shifts in the day with a third the number of people at them. Um, makes work a little less social, but it makes work a lot more safe. 
um, by having those fewer fewer bodies there. Right. Um, so it's just thinking outside the box, um, working out how you can do it, clean it, engineer it, um, and you know manage it from a personnel point of view to limit the number of people in a space and limit the number of interactions that people have to have. Right. Um, I think you mentioned in the, your, your blog posts, one of your blog posts about, you know, people who go shopping at a store in a mall, maybe have, you know, because the, the limited time that they're in a store, they may have a less risk of transmission, but the people who are working at that store have a much higher risk because they are in that same place all day long. Um, so that's kind of an interesting, you know, the, there's two sides of a business, you know, the customer safety yeah. and the, the employee safety as well. Well, my big one is I, um, I have money to spend and I am really concerned about the welfare of um, people working in these customer service type positions. Um, I have walked into stores to buy something, realized that there is not a culture in that particular store of safety for their employees. Um, and I just turn around and walk out and found another vendor that does have that care and concern for them. Um, we can't operate businesses um, and not have a concern for the welfare of the people that work in them. And as a business owner, you should not, you should have that concern as well, because if you have an outbreak in your store, in your staff, you're closed down. If you have an outbreak in your store, in customers, the public relations disaster that you will be dealing with is going to hurt your business. So look after your employees and you will succeed. Another point that um, you've talked about even in our conversation here that's important is ventilation. How the ventilation of a space makes a difference in terms of risk to people in that space. Tell us about that, why that matters, and how would you know if the ventilation in a workplace or a restaurant is okay? Yeah, so I will say I am not an HVAC person um, and don't want to step too far out of my lane with this. Um, but one of the things that has happened over the last decade are these ultra tight buildings that have recirculated air um, and they're made to be energy efficient. And if we're recirculating the same air with very little makeup air coming in it, you can end up with an accumulation of viral particles in that environment. The simplest way to think about it at home is your central air conditioning or your window unit doesn't bring air from the outside. It's just keeps chilling the air inside your place. So it's not exchanging air at all. Um, so it's really hard for a person to walk into an environment and work out if they've got air exchange or if it's air recirculation. Um, the only way you can see that is if the windows are open and you know you've got air exchange. But if we're talking about employees going into these situations, there should be conversations from their building engineers to discuss what type of filtration they have, how that they can improve it, um, and what you know, potentially supplemental filtration that they could put into either the system or as an auxiliary system to the one they currently have to improve the quality of the indoor air environment. Interesting. That sounds very complicated. <laughs> it is, but I cannot tell you the number of engineers that have reached out to me to say, this is what our systems can do. And I'm not knowledgeable enough on the HVAC side of things. But as soon as you start including things such as HEPA filtration and UV sterilization, um, as long as we know that the virus gets trapped by those things or killed by those things, they can only help with an environment that you're in. So I am, again, I'm really confident that we can science the daylights out of this problem, but we can also engineer and innovate our way to a, a better time, a better existence until we have a better treatment.
I have to ask you about face masks, which are a hotly debated topic in many parts of the country. People have probably heard that you should wear them, you know, when you go to the supermarket, go to the pharmacy. Um, but I think there's some other questions about where they can do the most good. Um, so I'm wondering if you can help us understand, is this something that you should be really wearing a face mask all the time? Um, you know, in your car by yourself when you're in a larger group? How, tell, give us an idea of, of how they, they help do the most good. When face masks have their part in this. Um, so again, what we can do to control the trajectory is social distancing, stay home when we can, masks and contact tracing. They're the, the big things that we have. And masks have a role. They're not the be all and end all, but they are a critical piece in this control. Anywhere you can't appropriately physical distance, um, be it an airplane, be it a restaurant, well, not a restaurant because you need to eat. Um, that's where those problems are. But um, in a store, um, anywhere that you can't maintain that distance, masks are part of the solution. Um, problems with masks uh, and scientists with masks are that we like to be very accurate in the way in which we talk. You know, masks will cut emissions by 72%. They want to be able to give those numbers. And then you say, well, only if it's fitted properly. Well, what if it's put this way? And so it's been really hard to get numbers on how efficient masks really are in stopping these respiratory emissions because, again, scientists want to be really accurate with the numbers that they have. But we do know that even the simplest handkerchief um, scarf put in front of your face substantially drops those big droplets coming out of your mouth, um, out of your nose. And if we can lower the amount of those respiratory droplet emissions, they're part of the solution. Um, so I have personally a couple of different masks. Um, I have a simple one for outside that just wraps around my neck. Um, if I can't distance myself and it's a really brief exchange, like walking past somebody on a, a hiking trail, I can pull it up, put it over my mouth and then drop it back down. And it's not like I have to carry something for the rest of the time. Um, when I'm going into a grocery store, I just have a, a good soft mask that feels comfortable. Um, it drops respiratory emissions. I'm not having to adjust it a lot. Um, it's not protecting me, but it's stopping what I'm putting out into the environment. If I'm in a situation where I cannot socially distance and I am there for a while, um, thinking commuter work or um, I've been doing some essential employee stuff at work to keep my research lab going, uh, when it brings multiple people together to actually work, I then have a high quality mask that protects both the people that are around me and myself. That makes sense. Something like similar to an N95 mask or something right. like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. We've talked a little bit about people who get angry when they see a jogger who's not wearing a mask when they're outside or, you know, somebody alone in their car. Those types of situations may not warrant a face mask unless you have to be close to someone else. Yeah. I, I look at joggers. If they're coming close enough to you that you can feel the breeze that they're generating from their run and they don't have a mask on, let them have it. Um, that's just not socially responsible at all or the right thing to do at all but if they are you know six eight ten feet away from you um, jogging without a mask again it's the amount of virus you get exposed to and time they're flying past you you're not sitting in their wake um, the risk factor is really you know quite quite low um, i wouldn't be drafting anybody so you know a long hike with a person in front of you, you're behind them for three hours. Yeah, it's a little bit more risky. Um, riding a bike, drafting a person behind there, I wouldn't be doing that. I'd be riding side by side. But let's not shame people for getting outside, getting exercise, and maintaining appropriate physical distance just because they're not wearing a mask. I think that's not where you should be spending your your energy and effort in um, trying to correct people's behavior. I think this question is top of mind for everyone at this point. In your opinion, 
how long do you think this new normal will last? Will this just go on until we have a vaccine that's pretty widely disseminated for everybody? Yeah, I mean, that's the question that we all all want to have an answer to at the moment. And this, my opinion is this virus is not going away. It is going to be the equivalent of um, the influenza, measles, mumps, things that are just part of human existence. But it's going to take a little bit of time and a little bit of pain and sacrifice from everybody before we come to the new normal. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, every day, every month that goes past gives us the opportunity for finding a new treatment. Um, a new treatment would be a great game changer for the trajectory of the, the virus. If we knew that we could keep um, a mild case from going to moderate or a moderate case to go into severe or keeping severe out of ICU through a treatment, we can manage not only the mortality rate, but um, what our hospitals look like. So I'm hopeful that with all these companies focusing on treatments, that something's going to, to come out of this. Um, we don't know what seasonality is going to look like. Um, many um, pathogens, many diseases have this process called seasonal forcing. It's changes in transmissibility of the, the virus or the bacteria, but also changes in regards to your physiology that happens in regards to winter and summer. Um, we see that with other coronaviruses. Um, we may see that with this one, but again, we don't have a season under the belt yet to really know about this. Um, again, I have confidence that we're educating the public we're becoming more aware. We look at how other countries have handled this that have gone through these type of things before. South Korea, Japan, for example, they've just ingrained into their day-to-day -day life how to minimize those contacts while still enjoying restaurants and um, going to gyms and things like that. So I, I, can f I feel that we can engineer both socially and environmentally um, a better normal than what we have right now. And that can happen sooner rather than later. Um, I'm hopeful for a therapeutic to come. And even if a vaccine doesn't make it, and I'm confident with 70 vaccines in trial that we will get there. I just don't know what the timing looks like for that, whether it will be January of next year or um, a few years time. That makes sense. I guess we'll just have to put our faith in the, in the science and people who are thinking about this issue and, and hope for the best. I and said, I have <laughs> never, never seen as many people, as many scientists coalesce around a single problem and work collaboratively as what I am seeing right now. There are some absolutely rock star scientists working on this and it's just, it's fun to watch what they are doing and how they're thinking and the breakthroughs that are happening in their labs every day. Um, I, I'm confident in the, the innovation and intellect of those people to help, help solve this. That's a reason to be hopeful. And on that positive note, Dr. Aaron Bromage, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here, Carrie. Thank you for having me on the show. Finally, we have a working from home tweak of the week, rig up a standing desk. If you spend at least part of the day standing up, you may be less likely to have shoulder or back pain. No standing desk, no problem. Place your laptop on a high counter, shelf, or an ironing board. It may take a while to get used to this way of working. To keep your legs and feet from getting sore, stand for no more than 30 minutes at first. A cushioned kitchen mat will also help. Now, if you also use your laptop while curled up on the couch, we have a quick hack for that too. Don't put your laptop on a pillow. It may overheat. Instead, prop it up on your lap with a few books. An empty two to three inch binder with the wider side facing your knees will also work. And remember to get up often for stretch breaks.
All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. One more thing before we go, though. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hope you'll join us next time.